welcome to the Web Policy Talk podcast recorded live at the Impact and Policy Research Institute Impri New Delhi attendees once we start then we have not started yet okay Namaste and good evening everyone. I am Ritika Gupta, Assistant Director at IMPRI Impact and Policy Research Institute, Prabhav Vepamniti Anusandhan Sanstar, Nai Dilli. Extend my heartiest welcome to you all to this hashtag web policy talk. Today we are here for a special talk as part of the series, The State of Cities, Hashtag City Conversations on in Infrastructuring the City, Trajectories of Violence. The speaker for today is Dr. Deliana Ayosifova. I would now like to request our moderator, Dr. Arjun Kumar, who is director at IMPRI, to introduce the program and the speaker further. Thank you. Over to you, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Ritika. And I welcome all of you to our series, The State of Cities, Hashtag City Conversations. And we are glad to uh, have this talk today and our distinguished panelists uh, to contribute to our series. And uh, we all can learn from these experiences. So today's lecture, uh, Infrastructuring the City, Trajectory of Violence, is given by Dr. Deliana Ayosopa. Uh, Ma'am is a senior lecturer in urban studies at the University of Manchester, United Kingdom. Where she's also the director of Confucius Institute. Uh, Ma'am is also chair of the Urban Studies Foundation, very renowned in urban studies. And currently, uh, Dr. Deliana leads a portfolio of research on sustainable infrastructure and transition. Uh, her work has, uh, she has worked on complex urban transformation, cities and biodiversity, and the human ecosystem of aging. Her main area research focus is on the global East and South, including China, Japan, Bulgaria, India, and Brazil. Uh, Ma'am is also author of the Translocal Aging in the Global East and lead editor of Defining the Urban. Uh, these are the book by Ma'am. We uh, uh, also have a very distinguished panelist today. So to Chair the session, we have Professor Dashni Mahadevia, and Ma'am is uh, Associate Dean Arts of Arts and also Professor of Social Science at School of Arts and Social Sciences, Ahmedabad University, Ahmedabad, Gujarat. Welcome, Ma'am. Uh, for discussions, we also have a very uh, renowned and distinguished urban urban uh, experts. Uh, we have Professor Zufairin, who is Professor of Sociology and Global Urban Studies at Michigan State University uh, from United States. We have Dr. Rumi Aizaz, who is Senior Fellow and Head of Urban Policy Research Initiative at Observer Research Foundation, URF, New Delhi. Uh, we have very senior professor, Professor Kalashridhar, ma'am, who is Professor at Center for Research in Urban Affairs at uh, Institute for Social and Economic Change, ISEC, Bangalore, Karnataka. We have Mr. Samir Unhale, uh, who is a practitioner, uh, who is currently Joint Commissioner at Department of Municipal Administration, Government of Maharashtra. Uh, Ambika Vishwanath, ma'am, who is co-founder and director at Kubernetes Initiative, non-resident fellow, Agora Strategy Institute, Germany, and also a China-India visiting fellow at Ashoka University. Uh, we, we are also uh, fortunate to be joined by Ziming. Thank you for joining so late, Ziming, uh, who is an assistant professor and lecturer at Wuhan University, Wuhan, China. And we'll also be joined by uh, uh, Dr. Sonia Vichatopadhyay, who is associate professor at Vishwanath University, Santiniketan and a visiting uh, senior fellow at IMPRI. So I welcome all of you. And now I invite our chair to give her opening remarks and uh, welcome our speaker for the day. Darshan, ma'am, over to you. Ma'am, you're on mute, yeah. yeah. So 
good morning good afternoon good evening from wherever you are uh, we still have professor shufaren joining or oh, she's not yet joined i will check with him yes because i don't see her um i will check okay <clears throat> so uh, you know we are meeting today to uh, discuss a very very important aspect of uh uh urbanization that we largely see in the cities of global south but is a very rapid expansion of infrastructure or what is said infrastructure led economic growth i was seeing dr deliana's uh, slide lot of her slides are located within in the context of china which has actually seen much rapid the economic growth is uh, largely based on uh, investments in infrastructure uh, developments in the cities and and so both infrastructure development and infrastructure development in cities and urbanization have been the drivers of economic growth and now number of other countries including what we see in india uh, following that path however the impact of such massive infrastructure development that we see <clears throat> are not neutral or not equitable uh, our own research tells us and from and there has been this term which is called in the literature on violence in cities a term called infrastructural violence that is violence uh, 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 experience of violence Uh, is structural violence often on account of the type of infrastructure projects that are taken up and the selective investments in large capital intensive infrastructure can also lead to deprivations of everyday infrastructure required in people's life which leads to another set of denials and structural violence so i invite dr deliana losifova to give her presentation uh, on this very interesting and newly emerging area of research in urban studies over to you uh, dr lasifua <clears throat> thank you very much um i will be sharing my slides in just one second just let me open this up again there we go so thank you very very much for the invitation um and thank you for organizing this wonderful group of of discussants and the chair for this session um dr kumar so um i would like to talk about infrastructural violence in possibly slightly different terms than they are being discussed in the literature at the moment largely um i want to talk about how infrastructure shapes everyday lives how it shapes social relations how it shapes um urban form and also longer term development trajectories in cities not only in the global south but mainly in the global south i will be focusing here on china um and because um findings from india and from brazil are not as developed we're just beginning to work in these areas um infrastructure is the transformative agency or infrastructuring is the transformative agency of infrastructure so i want to talk here about how infrastructure has this power to change um 
social relations change cities in ways that are largely unpredictable and therefore require very, very diverse sets of um, inquiries or methods of inquiry. Violence is central to contemporary infrastructuring. I will try to show that in, in this presentation. And I want to discuss, hopefully, with all of you how to balance between the benefits that infrastructural development can bring and the impact of such development on longer term sustainability, be it social or ecological or economic. Um, a lot of the things that I will be talking about emerge from um, projects that have been going on since 2019, slightly delayed with the emergence of COVID-19, but also bringing to the fore very, very interesting new questions and findings in relation with pandemics and public health that do emerge from the current situation. We work with colleagues in Mumbai um, at the Tata Institute of Social Sciences. We work with colleagues at Tongji University in Shanghai with colleagues in Belo Horizonte in Brazil, and we have a team here in the UK that sits in between the Manchester uh, Metropolitan University, University of Aberdeen, and um, University of Manchester. We also have colleagues situated in um, Japan at the University of Tokyo who are contributing to this project. Those are just uh, co-investigators across um, the, the two different projects that we're currently working on. And then we have a, a big body of fantastic students um, and postdoctoral researchers who are contributing to this research as well. So what is infrastructure? And, and for us, infrastructure is a complex formations that include resources, they include technology, um, they include humans, obviously, and they are entangled in many, many ways with nature, be it through this requirement for resources, for the extraction of resources, as well as for the disposal of waste that emerges from any kind of social activity. I want to talk here about sanitation in particular because this is where our research focus is on. And what you see here is an old map of um, Shanghai showing you Shanghai's canals um, 100 and something years ago. So what happened, I'm, I'm going to start with, with just show, showing you um, a bunch of different types of, of infrastructural systems and, and how they influence how um, we think about infrastructure as such. So for here, for instance, we start with, with this old map of Shanghai with its canal um, systems. And the way it used to work was that, and it works in very similar ways in many um, places around the globe, obviously, but um, people produced human waste in their homes in the city. They put out big pots full of human waste um, in front of their doors that was then connected by um, workers driven to um, the canals and uh, sold, sold to um, people on their boats who then transported human waste to the countryside where it was processed to become fertilizer and used to fertilize um, the land to grow food that was then sold back to the city to feed urban residents. Now, we would think of that as a fairly closed loop system. 
that doesn't produce waste, that values, in fact, waste as something that gives life and um, provides opportunities to, to grow food and, and um, feed back into the system, if you want. So the system was actually in place for a very long time in many cities in China and in Shanghai in particular. Its more recent form looks something like this. So this is from the 1960s, um, recently modernized, but um, still mainly functioning in very similar ways, where older neighborhoods in Shanghai um, collect their, their human waste um, as, as, with, as, as part of, um, or where human waste is collected within such um, community waste collection stations. So people from their homes bring their night pots and their waste in the mornings to this waste collection station, uh, throw it into this hole in the wall basically, and then it gets picked up, sucked up by, by the honeysucker trucks um, and uh, brought away to be processed no longer directly to the countryside, but to treatment plants and so on and so on. So um, still this, this system has been in place over hundreds of years, continuing to exist within this context. And then of course, what this is what we would think of as, as service network sanitation. And then of course we have modernization, we have the ideas of progress and modernity and what to expect from such progress. And one such thing is the, um, Western style flush toilet. Unfortunately, to date, no one has invented a system that could deal with the mass of human waste produced in mass um, high rise accommodations such as um, this produced here in Shanghai, as well as all over the world in high rise buildings, dense human settlements. Um, the flush toilet and the waterborne sanitation system is still being thought of as the most efficient way to get rid of human waste. I will talk later about the implications of such um, ideas. Um, but what we but what, what we see is that in the past, dealing with human waste involved a large chain of objects, of people, um, of of activities to deal with um, human waste, to get rid of human waste, to reuse human waste. While as today, it is mostly done through technology that may require some maintenance, but certainly not the massive um, human agency that it did over the last hundreds and thousands of years. Um, now, what does infrastructure mean in the everyday, it determines in, in very, very actively where, when, and how everyday social practices occur. And again, I wanna stick here with sanitation and I want to stick here with Shanghai. What we see here is a situation where the inhabitants of this makeshift line of housing that you see um, in this picture have no access to within their so-called homes, nor do they have access to human waste collection stations or community waste collection stations, such as the one that I showed you earlier. So in effect, they rely on open defecation in the streets and they rely on um, public toilets as and where they are available in the city. Public toilets that 
I think, still continue to close at nine o'clock at night and open at five o'clock in the morning and remain closed during the night. Um, that obviously has implications for when and where and how people go to the toilet. They have to go at specific times of the day. They have to identify places where they can go to be either in this undisturbed or unseen by others, and so on and so on. Um, that has, that carries risks of exposure. It has its, its limitations in many, many different ways. It carries risks of violence of all kinds, including sexual violence. Um, and it certainly is not something that we would consider safe in the city. Um, in Shanghai, we've had a whole range of short-term fixes that um, sought to repair the neglect of withheld or, or the neglect or the with, withholding of infrastructure within the city. Um, and there was a huge push for short-term fixes right before um, the Shanghai Expo and the Beijing Olympics in 2008 and 2010, respectively. So the city installed water taps for um, families and, and older type housing that did not have access to tap water in the past. Um, so there were such communal taps, water tap stations um, to make sure that people were happy just in advance of um, the Olympics and the Shanghai Expo. There were also grave mistakes made. So all of these things are considered temporary fixes. For instance, in this case here, right smack in the city center of Shanghai, what you see is a construction site where half of the neighborhood had been demolished to make space for new developments, uh, for new construction, and where Unfortunately, the waste collection station was demolished as well. And all of a sudden people realized that they have nowhere to get rid of their waste. So what um, was done was this temporary fix, which is basically a hole in the ground raised above ground um, where people go to do their business. And this was meant to be a temporary fix until the construction site began properly until the rest of the neighborhood was demolished and so on and so on. Um, but it, it remained in place for eight years as the only solution to, to the neighborhood's sanitation needs because of, la of holdups with, with the construction site, because of the undecisiveness of um, the local government about what to do with, about the situation and so on and so on. But we, we, we have here a permanent, if you want, temporarity that exists across different sites in the city where one step precedes another, but steps are jumped within, within the system. And so mistakes are made and, and um, temporary fixes need to be developed that may or may not meet actual community needs. With this um, waste collection or, or service network um, sanitation infrastructure, we have the continuous interaction of humans with specific infrastructural objects, such as the infamous Chinese night pot that you can see here in this picture. And you do have an extension of the boundaries of home. You have 
um, the everyday passage, if you like, through the city from the place where you sleep and eat to the place where you get rid of your shit, excuse my language, um, where you have to walk for several minutes to empty your night pot to wash your night pot to carry it back home. Um, that in itself is linked with social interactions of all kinds, with little chats, for instance, but it can also, of course, be linked with, with risks and, and um, potential exposure to violence of all kinds. We, hear, we see here this moment of a human infrastructure interaction where this lady empties her night pot in one of those night uh, of one of those waste collection stations because she lives in the older neighborhood on, on our side of, of the photograph, if you like. Um, and this waste collection station for this neighborhood is located right next to the entrance to um, a huge high-rise residential compound built for the urban middle classes. So we have here coexistence of the old and the new and the networked and the and the not networked, if you like, and the old style and um, the new progressive modern sanitation infrastructure. So we have a coexistence, a fragmentation of the city whereby privacy and privilege is something that is, or, or privacy is the privilege of the middle class and um, the upper class, um, and certainly not something that people in older neighborhoods can expect or rely on. Um, so as I said, we have not only in Shanghai, but across cities in China, across cities in the global south, the coexistence of technical infrastructures. So in this case, again, the service network infrastructure and the waterborne infrastructure for sanitation, uh, which, which also means the coexistence of different practices, openification, handling your night pot, having your, your flush bowl toilet inside your home. And this coexistence is linked with many, many different processes within society as well as reflected in urban form. Um, in essence, however, infrastructure structures everyday life where you go to the loo, whether you lose the bike or whether you use your car or public transportation, whether you have access readily from um, to electricity from your plug or whether you have to be inventive to get electricity, all of these things determine how your everyday life is structured, when you do what and how you do it. And then we get to infrastructure environment interactions. And I said it before, the density of these fragmentations, how they relate to each other, all of these things shape urban form, they shape the city. I'm gonna give you a very old example, something that I worked on many, many years ago, but here you have it, urban form reflects the type of infrastructure that services it. So we have here the old neighborhood um, with its narrow, narrow lanes suitable for bicycles and little things with its non-existent or 
temporary or service network sanitation infrastructure. We have it right across the street from the high rise buildings that are serviced by waterborne infra uh, sanitation that have the underground parking attached to them where landscape and green infrastructure is part of the concept of such neighborhoods from the onset and so on and so on. Um, all of these infrastructures require space, obviously, and all of these infrastructures replace things, places and people that have been there before. And that in itself embodies violence towards the city, towards the existing social and technical infrastructures where the implementation of infrastructure, of modern infrastructure, of modernization takes place. Infrastructuring shapes the conditions of social life. And I'm going to give you just a few examples of how, again, sanitation does that in the case of some of the people that we've spoken to in Shanghai. We have here the example of um, a self-built little house um, that was in possession of the family for 50 years plus. The parents died, the brother the two brothers broke into a huge fight about who's going to inherit the house because of new inheritance laws and so on and so on. Eventually they divided the house in two. They ended up with one brother having access to a tap um, in, inside their, their home and the other brother not. And those two brothers have not spoken to each other for the last seven years because they simply cannot come to terms as to how to divide the house properly and um, how to make sure that both of them have access to the tap water. Just a small example. We have the situation where older people are used, have grown up with, have lived all their life with night, night pots and, and having to rely on communal waste collection stations where they now are isolated from younger generations within their own family because younger generations do not wish to come and visit in such under such conditions conditions anymore after two hours or so everyone will have to go to the toilet and they simply do not cannot even imagine using an ipod or going to the public toilet within such older neighborhoods so in this case those um grandparents told us um, the children and grandchildren call, but they no longer come to visit because they simply cannot come to terms with um, the type of infrastructure available in such areas. Another couple who lives with their 30 plus something year old son, uh, where the situation is slightly different, um, where the son cannot get married. And I've heard lots of examples like that from India as well. And they cannot be, get married because every time he brings back a girlfriend, to their home and the girlfriend realizes that a flush toilet is not available. She runs away and uh, no longer wants to be in this relationship. So, so this requirement for um, the flush toilet, the Western style toilet um, as, as, a, as a requirement or pre-requirement for marriage. And then of course we have um, the situation where people who do not have access to any kind of sanitation um, are stigmatized and made responsible for the decline in the urban environment because they're seen as 
uh, dirtifying it because they have to defecate in the open because they have to hide behind cars behind trees to do their business and simply because there are no other options available so we have here a situation where the failure to provide infrastructure leads to stigma leads to exclusion from elementary um, social processes and here we are with with violence um, or back to violence or starting with violence and, and there is a distinction between the direct violence where resources are actively destroyed and the structural violence that Galton has spoken about in terms of social injustice where resources are monopolized by a group or class or are used for other purposes um, and we have all of this occurring when it comes to infrastructuring um, infrastructural violence is appearing in multiple modes and it's appearing now and it has implications for generations or for, for social groups now as well as for future generation, generations because of the trajectory that it carries. Um, so this, this infrastructuring violence includes the withholding as well as the implementing as well as the maintenance of, of um, infrastructure and I'm almost running out of time so I'm going to make this real quick but we do have here and this is where my interest in infrastructure started with this photograph here where you have the young man to the to the right hand side standing in front of the gate to his gated compound with his golf swings waiting to be picked up by his um, friend to go and play a game of golf and, and practicing his golf swing and where you see the little red circle you have um, um, a grandmother holding her granddaughter to pee or do a pool, whatever she is doing, simply because there is no sanitation infrastructure available to her where they live. They live across the street in an older neighborhood without access to sanitation. And, and this picture made me very, very curious as to how how this is possible in a place that apparently has seen this enormous economic growth. And in fact, figures from a few years back showed that whilst China's um, growth jumped multifold um, over the past two decades or so, so did also the number of people, the percentage of people in the city who had to defecate in the open, I think from 3% to 6% in the space of 20 years. So we have here the violence that occurs when you withhold infrastructure, where you simply take infrastructure away and do not provide replacement, such as in the case of this older neighborhood that was slated for redevelopment, where electricity was stopped, where water was stopped, where um, the waste collection station was no longer emptied and people were forced to sign resettlement contracts. Um, whilst all of their, neighbor, or their neighbors' houses were demolished to make space for the new construction site. We have the violence of demolishing existing infrastructure, housing, um, electricity, again, sanitation, demolishing it overnight in order to implement new infrastructure. In this case, people were promised that the older neighborhood would be demolished to make space for a new communal park. Instead, they received a sort of new communal park, but with three um, power substations integrated within it, 
people were furious. They were worried about their health, the impact on, on their property prices. They went very, very bravely. It was a different time. This was shortly before the Beijing Olympics. They went on the street. They blocked a major artery for an entire um, 45 minutes, I think, in protest against the, um, the construction of this electricity power substations within their immediate neighborhood. Of course, this was broken down. Of course, the protest was immediately, um, well, dispelled. Um, it's a long story. I don't have to, I don't have the time to tell you all about it. But um, of course, it resulted in eventually the power substations um, being built, displacing the communities that lived there before displacing the ecological systems that were in place before and replacing them with new infrastructure. It then turned out that this um, power substation was to feed a new metro station that was built again right next to it um, a couple of years later. And that takes me to sustainable development, the sustainable development goals and um, how this implementation and the construction and development of infrastructure may or may not contribute to sustainable development in the longer term. In China, we have very similar to what is happening in India, the toilet revolution that was announced by President Xi Jinping in 2015. It targeted mainly the um, Chinese countryside, but it had enormous um, effects um, of, on, on, on urban um, sanitation infrastructure as well. So um, public toilets were replaced quickly. They were modernized. We are now in a situation where if you visit a public toilet in Shanghai, more likely than not, you will be met by a face screen software toilet paper dispending machine that only gives you 60 centimeters of toilet paper. Um, and then you have to wait nine minutes before you can show your face again and get another 60 centimeters of toilet paper. Supposedly this was designed to prevent stealing toilet paper, but also um, in terms of sustainability to prevent people from overusing toilet paper. The, the toilet revolution has also led to an enormous boom in, in the replacement of existing infrastructural objects so people went all crazy about the japanese style toilet seat that uh, sings your song when you sit on it and keeps your uh, bottom warm and so on and so on and again the the western style toilet as a symbol of progress and modernization all of a sudden becoming the object of desire and being installed in every home regardless of whether or not this toilet is actually linked with the municipal sewage system or not. In many cases, it is not. And everything that goes into this toilet is flushed into the streets without proper treatment, without proper collection. This is true for, I don't have an official percentage, but an estimated 60 to 80% of municipal sewage anyways. Everything collected by the municipal sewage is flooded into open water bodies, into rivers, into seas polluting water bodies, polluting the environment, destroying ecosystems, disturbing ecosystems, um, taking it out of um, equilibrium and so on and so on. And so there's this question of future violence and the maintenance of this enormous progressive 
infrastructural systems where we have the question of whether we serve or whether we, we, we reduce the violence inflicted on marginalized social groups today, such as women, such as rural to urban migrants, such as the urban poor, in the, the, the infrastructural violence that comes from or that comes with withholding infrastructure from them, whether we want to reduce that in providing infrastructure that in the long term needs the kind of maintenance and massive infrastructural project that leads to the depletion of resources in the long term that is not sustainable in the long term because we know that water tables are going down. We know that this kind of these levels of water extraction cannot be sustained in the long term, um, cannot be maintained in the long term and therefore will lead to um, the type of violence um, when it comes to longer term health prospects and well-being prospects for future generations. So at a much, much larger scale, not just the urban poor, but really every single one of us and every single one of our children who will have to suffer from the effects of climate change um, that come with the depletion of resources and the scarcity of resources as we are um, progressing with it at this moment. Um, so in short, the infrastructuring inflicts violence through various modes, and this is withholding infrastructure for marginalized social groups and areas, constructing infrastructure in the city, intervening, demolishing, displacing, replacing, and then of course, maintaining unsustainable infrastructure and depleting resources in the long term. And I think I have more questions than I have answers to anything. Those are just a few of the things that we're working on at the moment and that will be out um, shortly um, in publication. And thank you very much. Yes, <clears throat> thank you very much, the, Dr. Deliana. Um, uh, one is really surprised uh, looking at the discussion that you put forth uh, about the situation in China uh, because uh, there has been, um, uh, in terms of uh, overall statistics, the picture looks much better. But in some of the older parts or, of, or maybe small towns and cities, uh, you do see uh, still lags in basic infrastructure, such as sanitation. Uh, so yes, indeed, it's, it's a different lens to look at what you have looked at. Uh, I'm sure the panelists are going to have different views on this. Uh, but I am, before I think uh, the panelists come in, I'm not going to summarize all. Uh, reflect on what you have said, uh, because this is an area that we've also worked and we've also constructed, uh, I think, you know, Amita is part of it. So she was part of the other research team that uh, we were, and there also we have uh, sort of uh, divided or classified violence as structural violence, but structural violence in a more broader sense of, uh, systemic deprivation and exclusions, uh, but also everyday violence 
experience because of this deprivation and where the violence experience is uh, different levels is it, is different is uh, by social groups and gender uh, because each one of them experiences this uh, uh, structural violence very differently and that needs to be uh, sort of uh, mapped out ethnographically and going into details and I presume China also has the social differentiation although uh, I mean its Gini coefficient is very high so obviously there's going to be much uh, larger uh, differentiation in terms of access deprivation and structural violence, especially I think one knows about uh, city migrants versus I mean, the migrants versus the uh, resident population. And in the migrants also you have the two categories, one who are more floating population and other is those who are tied to uh, their home and so on. So it will be interesting to, in case you have done that work or Probably if you're going to, it seems you're going to embark on this research. So maybe it'd be good to look at that. But something more puzzling to, to me, and I've not got an answer, so I'm not expecting you to answer, but to brainstorm, because sometimes it's, it's this era of neoliberalism that we're using the term infrastructure uh, that comes with a connotation of economic growth tied to it. Uh, but earlier we were using the term services, basic services, water sanitation. And so at some point in time, I would, I mean, even some of the panelists would reflect on that. Uh, why this shift and why? Because I would think sanitation, water supply, I mean, in an economic sense, it adds to productivity, but it's also a service. It makes uh, habitable and it's, it's it's what I think SDGs are hinting at, that everything that you do finally needs to put in the 17 SDGs, which are in any way have overlaps with each other and so on. So um, why why we're using the term infrastructure? Uh, so I think uh, these are two things that hopefully our research projects seem to future answer. And if somebody wants to put, sort of reflect on these terms. so. Maybe now we could invite the panelists to give their inputs and right, right. I, yeah, so I, I don't have any special preference, but I'm looking at your poster. So after Deliana, I mean, it's my name, then Deliana. So I go to Kala. Yes. And I go in that sequence as it is on the poster. As uh, so, and it's got how much time, uh, uh, Dr. Arjun Kumar? Ma'am, Kala ma'am has worked extensively on India-China, I think. No, no, I know her. We were part of the same group. But, around uh, five to seven minutes, ma'am. Yeah, okay. So huh. Kala has said we have this elephants and dragons book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but I won't be talking about that because that's all about economics and uh, benefits and costs of urbanization, agglomeration, benefits of density and so forth. So I'm not no, going no, to no. talk about I that did here. Right? Infrastructure, yeah. so I did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. So thank you very much for this opportunity to listen to this presentation by, by Dr. Deliana Isifova. And uh, uh, thank you, Darshini, for this opportunity to go uh, the first. So I can say a few new things, I guess. 
and uh, Darshini is very right. She was talking about infrastructure and economic growth, the relationship between infrastructure, economic growth. So I was thinking, I mean, when I saw the definition with the title of your presentation, that infrastructural violence is something that I've actually not heard much about. And it's a very, very new and emerging area of research. So I, I was trying to just clarify in my own mind, what is the difference between infrastructure period and infrastructural violence infrastructure is i mean uh, uh, like uh, uh, dr shini was saying that it's basically improves your quality of living basic service and so forth and it contributes to economic growth improves your quality of living definitely increases productivity and so forth but infrastructural violence actually is a very appropriate term especially in the context of developing countries, because it shows infrastructure can be used as a double-edged sword, right? So it can be an active infrastructural violence or passive infrastructural violence. And uh, because the term violence is used, I try to use this kind of negatively, right? That is what happens when a certain infrastructure or basic service like sanitation is not provided, is not provided, right? And uh, actually, Dr. Deliana uh, made a very, very interesting uh, 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 relationship, I mean, comment about the relationship between infrastructure and urban form. Actually, I think that is not directly related to sanitation, but uh, there is one way in which this actually manifests in a very, very important manner in India and affects uh, inclusion negatively. And this is, uh, I mean, uh, the building area, I refer to the building area regulations called the floor area ratio. That is a very, very important measure of how tall a building can go subject to infrastructure availability, road width, setbacks, uh, the parking availability and other requirements, land use, plot size and so forth. Okay, so now this directly affects urban form. This directly urban affects urban form in the sense that cities that have a very high number on this FAR or FSI, as it's called in Gujarat and uh, Maharashtra, they become very, very tall and very compact and economically efficient. But cities that have a very low number, like Indian cities are very, very typically representative of this trend, uh, very low FAR, FSI, they are quite spread out and urban sprawl is uh, uh, easily observed and uh, long commute times and housing becomes very expensive because you're bidding up the price of housing and land in general. So that I thought is where, uh, one example in which infrastructure affects urban form. Although, I mean, I, I do understand that you talked entirely about sanitation. So now what, uh, what uh, I wanted to just uh, distinguish here before I go to some constructive comments uh, to Dr. Deliana is that I perceive active infrastructural violence as the uh, 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 policy action when a group is deliberately prevented from accessing a certain service, right? 
see, actually, I'm sure that, I mean, I was quite shocked to know uh, from the fascinating uh, pictures and images that you showed, Dr. Deliana, that even Shanghai continues to have this problem of open defecation. See, I think uh, similarly, I mean, if, if a group, uh, uh, an urban uh, slum, a squatter settlement is uh, not provided a water connection. So they will be forced to, I mean, uh, uh, defecate in the open probably, right? So these are examples of active infrastructural violence, whereas the FAR, FSI example that I gave in which cities become compact or sprawl, as the case may be, they are examples of uh, passive infrastructural violence. Cities necessarily don't want to keep the FAR or FSI low, but they want to keep it low because they cannot provide the infrastructure, because you cannot pump up water to the 25th floor or cannot provide electricity to the 30th floor, right? So that I would call is an example of passive infrastructural violence. So uh, I want to give you some food for thought with the huge amount of data you seem to have on sanitation in Shanghai, and maybe you will be uh, uh, scaling it across nationally also. I would like to really know, I am an urban economist, and see, in India, uh, estimates are that uh, the uh, effect of poor sanitation on uh, the urban GDP uh, is up to 6% of the urban GDP. Those are the estimates, 6%, right? That's quite a lot, 6% because uh, if you defecate the open, the family will get sick and they will have cholera, they'll have diarrhea and they go to the doctor, they spend a lot and all these are accounted for in the GDP. Right. So I would like to know, Dr. Deliana, at some point, I mean, like, just like Professor Darshini said, I don't expect you to answer these questions now, but there's something for you to consider in the next uh, leg phase of your research. So, so one is the effect of urban sanitation or urban GDP, one. And uh, see, uh, I, yeah, could you, I have a couple more minutes. I, or, I think your time is long overrun so. oh okay i'm sorry so let me let me just stop at this point because i think dr arjun kumar said that we'll have some more rounds to come back sure so so uh thanks a lot dr deliana i really enjoyed your presentation with the beautiful stories and the images and thanks professor darshini for the opportunity and sorry if i have overrun my time bye for now uh, so can we go to Dr. Rumi Ajaz? Hello, everyone. Good evening. Are you able to hear me? Yes, sir. OK. So this, uh, first of all, I would like to congratulate the speaker for a very good presentation. Uh, the analysis of topics such as plight of some communities the human and infrastructure interactions, and the social, economic, and environmental impacts of uh, infrastructuring attempted by the speaker is leading to some very useful results. Rumi, sir, a bit louder, please. Or you can put the mic near mic you. Closer? Closer? Yeah, mic little closer. Yes, that would Is be. it better now? Much better. Thank, thank you, sir. Okay. 
So as I was saying, I would like to congratulate the speaker for a very good presentation. Uh, the analysis of topics such as plight of some communities uh, in China in the context of sanitation, the human and infrastructure interactions that take place and the social, economic and environmental uh, impacts of infrastructuring uh, attempted by the speaker is leading to some very useful results. Uh, when we study such uh, topics in the context of India, we, we find many similarities. Uh, I myself have uh, looked at uh, some related topics which might be of interest to Dr. Deliana, uh, such as the conditions prevailing in the informal areas of, of the city. Uh, and by informal areas, I mean the slums that are quite uh, a prominent phenomenon in India. Uh, then we have looked at the social and uh, social protests and conflicts over water. Uh, there are several communities uh, in cities that are not being provided uh, with a piped supply of water. So many a times they protest and in the wake of that, there is uh, a lot of violence that occurs the between the authorities and the communities that are not getting the service. Then also the practices of manual scavenging uh, and manual cleaning of uh, sewers uh, by the sanitation workers is a prominent phenomenon in India and it is causing uh, hardships in the lives of those communities, despite the fact that the authorities and the government of India and the state governments, they, uh, while they do have an aim and intention to to address the concerns of uh, these sections of the society. But uh, uh, for a variety of reasons, this such issues have been long pending in India about which some uh, urgency or urgent action is required. Then we have also looked at the relocation of uh, poor people to city peripheries. Uh, the speaker did mention about uh, these, these, uh, this subject in the presentation. Uh, I personally have visited uh, Ahmedabad in this context where uh, slum communities from the Savamati River Basin area, river front area were relocated to uh, the peripheral areas of the city, uh, which did not have sufficient facilities and services for them. Uh, that led to a lot of difficulties in the lives of those communities because they were disconnected from their roots. Uh, many children had grown and li had lived, uh, and many adults they had lived, spent their entire lives uh, along the uh, course of the river, but uh, their relocation uh, led to uh, numerous difficulties in terms of their employment, the education of their children, or even commuting because the, the, those far off areas were not very well connected with the city center where they had been uh, offering services of various kinds and were earning a living there. Then also, uh, uh, then there are the adverse effects of urbanization on water bodies and on the peri-urban areas of cities. I have uh, very uh, carefully tried to understand this in the context of Delhi where uh, the river Yamuna is receives a lot of industrial effluents and 
and there are many communities who live along the course of the river which uh, which uh, have numerous implications on their health of the communities that live there and also the peri urban areas uh, outside or nearby delhi or at the, on the peripheries of delhi they they are subjected to a number of adversities because of the occurrence of urbanization in delhi so and and in the satellite uh, satellite towns of delhi nearby cities of delhi so our understanding of uh, uh, urbanization and infrastructure is is being uh, developed or is being understood from a review of the prevailing conditions that we have looked at uh, in india although uh, i have been to china a couple of times uh, and uh, uh, some of the previous speakers including the honorable chair mentioned that the situation is quite different from what were shown in the slides by dr deliana and uh, what we saw in china when we were there uh, on several occasions about uh, such glaring inequalities that exist in so far as the access to infrastructure and basic services is concerned uh, i i myself i uh, have a background in urban planning and i have studied urban governance for some time and in my view i feel that the equity and uh, inclusion components in city laws in urban plans in the governance and development practices that uh, city governments follow these need to be critically reviewed and analyzed i do not know how much uh, of this has been attempted by the speaker dr deliana today but uh, we always uh, look at the the efforts or attempts being made by the respective governments whether in india or china as to what is the approach towards these communities and how what are the challenges that they are experiencing uh, in terms of addressing uh, the issues faced by uh, some communities whether they are in the planned areas of the city or the unplanned area of their city so my uh, final point uh, uh, is about the uh, attempts that are being made in india which uh, might be of interest to dr delyana as she uh, pursues her, her research further uh, there are a couple of initiatives or missions that the government of india has initiated to address such aspects and it does to a great extent uh, address the, uh, the 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 challenges posed by the speaker about the 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 interactions about the conflicts about the violence that occurs due to non availability due to the relocation of of uh, of housing from one part to the to the peripheries of the city uh, missions such as the smart cities mission uh, which is for 100 cities of india and another mission called the swachh bharat mission or the sanitation mission Uh, which has been is being pursued by the indian government since, since the present gov uh, political party came into power uh, about the the which has two two focus areas one about just winding just finishing uh, uh, about uh, the the provision of toilets at the household level and also the collection and uh, uh, recycling of solid waste 
uh, on a big scale, uh, which uh, the citizens are expecting to happen. And then the housing for all mission and also the national urban digital mission, which is a very recent initiative under which uh, data on a large uh, indic urban indicators is going to be collected on all urban, about 4,000 statutory towns of the country uh, on, on, the, on the different urban indicators, including sanitation and also the, the capacity building that is going to, uh, that is going to assist the functionaries in better performance of their tasks. So uh, this, this aspect or this topic uh, in the context of India is not going to be an easy journey but I think uh, uh, by uh, reviewing some of the ongoing initiatives would help in finding a way for resolving uh, the, the current issues. Thank you very much. So uh, now can I invite uh, Dr. Ambika Vishwanath to present her views? Um, thank you, Professor Darshini. And um, hi, Professor Deliana, again, it's nice to see you again. Um, you, you know, I have many, many more questions than comments, uh, I think, but I'm hoping some of my questions will, will help in um, furthering your research. Uh, but first, I, I want to actually take off from where um, Professor Kala and Dr. Rumi um, sort of led us down this path. Um, as you know, but uh, some of the others here might not know, I work a lot on water, so urban, um, urban spaces and, and water security. So in that sense, uh, I'm also veering in that direction a little bit, but it ties really well in with your whole research on sanitation, um, because, you know, Obviously, one can't do one without the other. Uh, it was it was very interesting. I think that Dr. Rumi brought up the whole um, the the missions that we're discussing in India, especially the one on on um, sanitation and our smart cities, uh, and they are worth looking into for for some of the ideas they present. But also, I would say for some of the things that some of the learnings of of what went wrong that are now trying to be corrected going forward. Um, and, and one thing that I, I wanted to point out is, is I, I, I'm, I'm doing some research, as you know, on, on China and, and the cities there as well, as, as, well as uh, some of the other um, cities in, 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 uh, in Asia on this subject. And, and this, this point of passive infraviolence that um, Professor Kala brought out, I think is very important, especially in the Indian context. And, and I and want to give an example over here of, of where I think it might fit, but then might help you look at um, some of these cities in China. And then maybe once you broaden your research is, is, is bridging that gap between sanitation and the lack of water. Um, so we had this drive in India to, to bring, you know, the toilets to, to every household. Um, but when we started this initiative, we didn't really think about, okay, we'll build this toilet in somebody's house, but if they don't have a water connection, um, they're not really gonna be able to use that, that toilet, which, which, which you mentioned also in some of the older households about the, the ambition and the aspiration of having this Western. Or in India, we have, you know, the Indian style toilets also, but without the, the, the water, they're, they're just flushing everything onto the street outside, right? So, so that 
connection is now somewhat happening i would say very little in india but it's happening um and i think if if we look at that from a a passive intra violence lens which is which is very i i would say interesting i've never thought of that so thank you professor kala for actually putting that out there because i'm going to now i feel like redo all of my research um from that lens but i feel like if we look at it from that lens then it it might lead us to a whole host of different you know first research and data sets and points but then possibly lead us to a whole host of different solutions that one might not have already um come across so so i wanted to put that out there and the other so then now coming to my to my million questions i'll try to keep it short and maybe just ask a couple because then we can come back um uh and and maybe some others will have some similar questions but i was actually a little bit curious because you talked about um the uh, the social stigma and the violence and then and gender uh and i'm wondering uh in some of these um cities that you looked at in the research what happened what happens to the women um especially the uh, women and girls who are at uh, a menstruating period um and that age bracket um when they use the toilets what happens to the products that they're using uh because are, are they also going in the buckets are they going in uh, is there a separate system for that um because if there's there's no separate system or they're all lumped together that's a whole different um environmental and ecological issue then we're facing uh then because you talked about how some of these buckets are just being put into the water system so are all of those products also going in the water system um because then as somebody who works on water resources i'm like um that's that's a uh, uh, you know that's sort of um it's upsetting so so what so i'm 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 just curious i mean is that something you've looked at maybe you want to look at uh, maybe consider what um uh, parallel line then can be thought of from that perspective and then also then to add on over there from the gender angle is do the to the young girls then um face a similar social stigma because there is a definite social stigma in in india and in in other countries as well um for young girls who are at a menstruating age so does that stigma exist as well in china and then how does that this whole concept of infrastructure violence um how does it affect them is it is it greater than it affects you know for example a young i mean obviously it's greater than it affects a young boy but but what is the extent what are the 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 what is the the research behind that what are the kind potential solutions if any um and how do we take that forward then um and i guess my other you know point is um uh when we when we talk about um uh we've talked about you know the social divide and and there's a systemic deprivation but i'm also curious is there a class i mean there is a class divide because we talked about the you know people who live in the slums and and the low income areas um the migrant laborers but in indefinitely in in indian cities we see even affluent societies in some of you know india cities i'm i'm in mumbai so i'll speak about here they don't always have access to to 24/7 water um um currently no indian city gives 24/7 water to all its residents and some of the richest housing societies i know here in bombay do not they buy water from the tankers they still don't have um water all the time so so does that also come into play when we think about infrastructure violence um um we, or does it not uh, uh does it not is it not big enough of a data set 
to to warrant uh, looking into. I mean, that I'm just curious as to how that plays out in in China. Um, I think I've asked more questions than I've um, uh, commented, but thank you. Your, I mean, the presentation was was really interesting, and and it really helps sort of put some different lenses into some of the work that we're doing here in in India. So thank you for that. And Professor Darshini, I will stop now. Thank you, uh, uh, Dr. Abhika Vishwanath. Uh, our last panelist, I suppose, uh, Dr. Arjun Kumar, yes, Dr. Zuming Lee. Yes, yes, ma'am. Samir sir is also joining. Who is joining? Samir, Samir sir. Samir, Samir yes, sir. I will, I will coordinate. But Zuming, why don't you go ahead? Yeah. We are very keen to listen to you, uh, Dr. Lee. Yes, Zemin, we can hear you, yes. Okay, thank you, thank you. And I learned a lot from me, all of you. And because I also do the research about the Indian slum upgrading and especially look at the similar topic, it's about a, a violence happened in Bihar. And uh, I find a lot of similarities between my research and uh, today's presentation. And you define it as uh, infrastructural violence. And I find the reason that the violence happened there is because their perceived infrastructure, infrastructure uh, insufficiency. So it's a kind of a linkage between the insufficiency and the violence because of the scarcity of the resources and the space and people have to fight to each other. This is my understanding. And when I, uh, came back to China, I never realized that in Shanghai, and we also have the similar situation there. It's ignored, it's ignored the corner of the city. And then I find that recently the Chinese scholars, they are focusing on amenity because amenity is looking at the advanced aspects of infrastructure. And uh, sometimes we look at the more uh, micro level infrastructure provision and uh, usage and how we can upgrade infrastructures to uh, make it more attractive and make people feel happy and get a more um, benefits from some uh, advanced infra infrastructure. And then this is uh, the future directions of the uh, urban renewal. And it's a part of the uh, informal settlement upgrading and also the other formal residential resident residential buildings upgrading this is what is what happened in china and then if i will do the research both in china and india i would like to see the trend whether they also put the, the infrastructure up, upgrading to that direction so the linkage between the amenities and infrastructures and people's feelings and their behaviors. Uh, but I'm really interested in your one slide. You draw the graph. Um, I think it's a link between the dog, uh, that, that slide, the dog and the, the people within the buildings. And I'm not sure what you are talking about, but I think it's a lot of story happened there and you visualize the, the um, 
relations between people and the space and also people and animals. And sometimes we, we think this is, 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 um, is, a, is kind of, it's kind of hard to just visualize the relations in that way, in a two-dimensional way. But if in the future you can draw a graph in a three-dimensional way, then this is some, they have more stories to tell. Yeah, this is my comments. Thank you. Oh, Dr. Lee, thank you. Uh, uh, for uh, questioning what Dr. Deliana has presented. Dr. Uh, Ma'am, we can go to uh, our speaker to respond. Okay, fine. I, I so, will try to collate all the questions until then. Okay, and uh, I think, uh, so Mr. Sam Samir Unhale is not joining. Ma'am, I will just check with him. Okay, so meanwhile, um, yes. in case Zoom. he speaks, Zoom. joins. I will, uh, I will inform. Yes. Yeah, Dr. Deliana, would you want to respond to some of the comments? Um, that was a lot. So thank you very, very, very much. I've tried to, to keep notes, but obviously I will not be able to respond to all of it. Uh, but, but thank you very much. Very insightful, very helpful, very inspirational idea indeed. Um, let me start with the easy bits if I have a little bit of time. So Ambika, question about um, menstrual waste, menstrual products and all these kind of things. So the situation, in, let me start the other way around. So the project does start with everyday practices. So it is an ethnography in essence. We are not uh, due to COVID and many other reasons, we're not going into the household surveys and, uh, and the large scale research that we had planned. So we're going into a very, we're going in from a very, very ethnographic perspective and using very ethnography focused methods of, of data collection and of analysis. So we have lots of stories of everyday practice and detailed um, diaries of everyday practice. And this includes menstrual hygiene across different age groups, across um, different social class, etc., etc. And it is interesting. Um, Menstrual waste usually does not end up in the system because China has always had the basket culture where toilet paper and any kind of paper used for hygiene goes into the basket in the first place. That's the case at home. It's the case in public toilets, any kind of public facilities. And the same is true for menstrual waste. So everything that is sanitary napkins, etc., etc., is thrown into um, baskets that are then being collected as waste rather than being thrown into the toilet. This has to do uh, with the fact that, and I don't remember the precise percentage, but something like 80% of toilet paper is actually produced, is actually not flushable. So toilet paper is simply not thrown into the system. This is beginning to change now with um, students, workers, etc., who've been who've gotten used to practices abroad, coming back to China and starting to throw um, paper into the system, and and yeah, negative negative impacts of these kind of exposure to Western practices. So that is beginning to change. But until very very recently, 
this simply didn't exist as a thought process to throw your waste into the into the well into the toilet or into the um, system um, it is and again this is also beginning to change so everything is in the process of changing at the moment but um and my interpretation is that it has a lot to do that current practices have a lot to do with the history of china and um things like um, the Cultural Revolution, the lack of privacy over many, many, many years, the very dense living conditions that people of all classes have been exposed to over generations. Um, and so this, this um, taboo of the toilet or of sanitation or of menstruation or any of these things simply doesn't seem to exist. So people are extremely open to talk about, at least in my experience, they have always been extremely open to talk about their sanitation practices, girls about their menstruation practices. And so this kind of stigma that we know from elsewhere simply does not seem to be a factor of this kind. It is, um, so stigma or, or the, the violence against young girls, uh, against women who are menstruating um, is, is not in any way comparable to what we, we know about from places like India, Thailand, and so on and so on. Um, what we're seeing, however, is, and, and I guess that's something that we'll be seeing everywhere, is, is simply the, the implications for health and well-being, for instance, of pregnant women who do not have access to sanitation, of course, right? So, so pregnant women who have to go to the toilet in the middle of the night, who do not have the appropriate um, conditions to, to bathe or to shower or to take care of, of their bodies when, when they need to, and, and particularly during pregnancy, that being uh, uh, something very, very difficult to deal with. In terms of sanitation practices itself, the class divide is obviously existent. So any kind of sanitation practice variety is associated with a specific social class. And that is very, very clear and leads to, to very difficult, um, what, what do we want to call them, intergroup relations when it comes to um, inclusion. Um, Oof. There was there was so much that I could talk about, <laughs> but but I think it's it's really um, as as an architect. In I was I was trained as an architect, so so I come into this as as somebody who who actually is a big fan of cities, building cities, and and high densities and um, FIRs and all these um, kind of um, things. I think that we have we have lots to consider and to reinvent um, for cities. We we have we 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 are we are simply assuming and we are appropriating models that have been propagated for whatever reasons by the West and that are not appropriate in any way elsewhere they're not appropriate for the climate of india for instance they're not appropriate for for living traditions practices habits etc in china so um architecture needs to obviously and city planning and urban planning needs to respond to local 
conditions of all kinds. And, and I think we have to learn a lot in that respect. Um, I am still very curious about the economically efficient city of the high FAR. Obviously it is economically efficient, but how is, is there a way to make it ecologically efficient as well? And I know that there's a huge debate at the moment, but I think it needs, it requires this collaboration between the social scientists and the ecologists and the economists and well, they are social scientists, but we are not having these uh, conversations and the planners, we're not having these conversations nearly enough in order to be able to develop appropriate responses for the huge challenges that we are facing in any kind of um, development strategies and trajectories, particularly in the global south where things are happening so fast and so um, not sufficiently thought through at the moment with impending climate crisis and, and every these very different kinds of challenges that we are facing. So I think we do need to have very, very um, extended conversations about very basic rules of, of urban planning and of architecture before we, we can respond to any of these challenges in the right way. I'm looking at my long list and I'm seeing a long list of things that I could talk about. <laughs> yes, Dr. Ajumuban. Uh, ma'am, I was thinking, meanwhile, I can add some of the questions which have come, but ma'am, if you have less than, please go on. No, so I, yes, yes we'll listen to the questions. You can raise them with Dr. Deliana. And Let then me. we can have a last round of quick yes. comments from the panelists. All the panelists, right, ma'am. So one question Ramakrishna has raised that in India, manual waste collection by the scavengers have been banned. And here it's not waste, it's actually, you know, shit. So there is, is there any such legislation in China that formally bars such practices or inhuman practices? Then uh, we have one question that uh, the term violence implies some sort of dom domination and submission. Of course, the submission is from the vulnerable. Where is the resolution? Uh, then another question is increasing pace of urbanization itself imposes a lot of violence on the population, including the environment. In the name of development, the natural resources base is being compromised. Do you think this is a correct, correct understanding of one form of infrastructural violence? And some of the things I have also noted, uh, Dr. Rumi sir also added the schemes which our government have. We also have Amrut and uh, around 500 cities. There, our focus is on sanitation and infrastructure. Uh, we also have community sanitary complexes. And in urban India, during this campaign, we have made 600,000 of those. Uh, but again, water and other issues also comes. And uh, what I have been also uh, understanding, and I have worked with Professor Mitab Kundu, and uh, one thing he has been highlighting uh, that elite, there is exclusionary urbanization and uh, there is also uh, elite capture. Uh, uh, and uh, what we have also witnessed that uh, our cities or how we are also giving the services, there has been a, a, a very open, uh, our approach has been toward the private sector. Uh, that is also not happening. But there is also that the engineering department is taking or the contractual or quick fix, as you were uh, rightly mentioning at the start, 
So uh, what do you think would be a sustainable solution towards that? Because everywhere we are having uh, quick fixes for this event or other, or a real estate development by this lever or that. And now we are uh, again, as uh, uh, you know, infrastructure, all the, all the countries are revisiting. Even US in United States, a $2 trillion kind of investment. In India also, we have national infrastructure pipeline. So almost two, $2 trillion in, uh, investment there also coming. So what are your recommendations so that uh, we uh, do not go to these quick fixes and make some positive impact? These were some of the questions. Please choose to answer. Then we go a way forward round to everyone. And final comments by you and Chair. What an easy question, Arjun. <laughs> what are the solutions? <laughs> um, I'm sorry, I don't, unfortunately, I, I don't have, I absolutely don't have any kind of recommendations for possible solutions. I just feel that um, quick fixes obviously are quick fixes and they're not doing the right thing. So what we do need to do is to consider situations on a case-by-case -case basis and to really begin to reinvent um, but but based on knowledge because as far as I'm aware there's very little work being undertaken that really considers everyday local practices everyday um, really the, the everyday and how a possible solution to a possible challenge could fit into this everyday without um, without destroying and disturbing existing social and ecological systems. And that requires lots of work, it requires lots of investment. And I don't think that technical investment is the right way to go as, as, as the first go-to solution. So it would require very in-depth, very um, thorough research into local conditions first in order to identify possible um, solutions and 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 that requires again transdisciplinary working. So it requires um, input from ecologists. It requires input from architects. It requires input from local communities. So you do need that transdisciplinary working in order to develop appropriate solutions. Um, right. So. Urbanization is it's absolutely, and I thought that was an interesting question, but in the name of development, the natural resource base is being compromised. That is absolutely the case. And um, yes, in my view, this is infrastructural violence and it is not, again, it's not being taken into consideration enough by um, those who are planning and implementing um, potential solutions and that gets comes back to that other question about violence, about submission, about the vulnerable, who are the vulnerable and who, who are um, those in, in acting the violence. And I think that is a huge problem with the current conception of violence because it does, especially when we talk about structural violence, it is being assumed that that is not something that can be traced to specific actors. It is considered to be part of the power dynamics within a system, part of the system itself. And I think here I would I would back to disagree. I do think that, um, especially when it comes to infrastructure and the implementation of infrastructure, you can actually trace back. You can count um, or, or you, you can hold people accountable, actors who are in acting, who are implementing, who are paying for infrastructure, who are taking up loans to implement um, infrastructure and to withhold it from specific groups. So 
all of this doesn't happen because of random conditions in the system. It happens because it is being enacted by people in positions of power. So you can't hold people accountable and structural violence is not just simply distributed um, in random, untraceable ways in the system. Right. So I do think that, that that notion of infrastructural violence requires a lot more work. And I do think that it requires a lot more integration in the ways in, in which we think about, about infrastructure in the city. Right. In fact, there is also the right-based perspective, right to the city. Darshini ma'am at the start only said that uh, th there is this differentiation of infrastructure and services and the right-based approach. Yeah, and uh, uh, we as Indian are also, uh, you know, very famous that Indian standard we, for infrastructure. Also, we have service level benchmarks from uh, many organizations, but our infrastructure worldwide kind of famous that we do not have any bottom. So uh, that also, and we have to build that. So. Uh, nevertheless, we, we will go to a way forward round and start with Kala ma'am to okay. uh, give one minute, you know, way forward and Kala yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. We have yes, only 10 yes. minutes left. So let's uh, just one minute, one and a half one. minutes from the panelists, please. Panelists, uh, yes. Okay. Very quickly. Darshini cut me off last time. I'll try to make up for this. Uh, but I'm sorry. But an I extra minute. Uh, so what I was trying to ask is whether there is any systematic relationship between size of the city and the possibility of open defecation, Dr. Deliana. You talked only about Shanghai, but I just wanted to know whether Xi'an will be the same, Chongqing will be the same, or Wuhan would be the same, right? That would be a very interesting relationship. So in other words, you would like to understand whether open defecation is a micro level characteristic or a macro level phenomenon, city level, or micro level meaning what are the characteristics of individuals which systematically determine whether they engage in open defecation or not, right? That is one other thing. And the final thing I wanted to say is that before Dashrini cuts me off again, is that what are the institutional arrangements for provision of urban sanitation in China? See, in India, they're all very, very fragmented, right? Uh, we have the Slum Development Board and we have the uh, uh, National Urban Sanitation Policy and we have the state government doing something. We have a large number of private actors also. So even if you want to look at data on how many public toilets there are in Bangalore or Mumbai or Delhi or Chennai, we won't really get that information very easily without uh, doing a lot of sober salts. So is that a similar problem in China or is it a little bit uh, easier or more messier? Thank you. Uh, Doctor, uh, yeah, way forward, would you like to suggest something on this? Bisha, I mean, you've already suggested the, the existence of large number of schemes, but a final one minute suggestion. Yeah, just, just one sentence. I won't take uh, much time. Uh, I, I think that, uh, uh, if I was conducting such a study or I was engaged in such research, I would have also looked at the mechanisms that have been created uh, by the agencies or the units of the government to facilitate or promote interaction between the citizens and the departments of the government. Because uh, when you try and address such complex social issues, then uh, an understanding of what the community's requirements are and what they are thinking about uh, 
what would be convenient to them needs to be understood to take things forward. So that is the only thing that I would wish to say. Thank you. Yeah, Dr. Ambika Vishwana. Um, well, Dr. Rumi um, asked what I was going to, to ask about having a more community involvement. Um, but I'm just gonna add on to Dr. to Professor Kala's um, question about you know city size and how that makes a difference. And also if the, the presence um, of a nearby versus far away water source, do you think that also makes a difference um, when it comes to creating better sanitation networks? Um, if that's something you wanted to look at as well. Yes, Dr. Zemingli, would you have any final word on this? Uh. Oh, yes, I have. And I hope uh, someday that we do uh, horizontal comparisons, not just uh, focusing on one city. Maybe we look at a different uh, uh, tires of the city. For example, Shanghai is the first tire, and then we go to the central, the, the central China, like Wuhan, and also to the west, west part of the China, and we will see quite different uh, scenarios of the open defecation or sanitation problems. And then we go to the different uh, communities, and some of them in the middle of the, the city, and some is in the suburb. And uh, then we, we will find the pressures of housing and look at the institutional factors behind the, the individual behaviors. And then we go to different countries, developing countries, not just the China and India, but also the like Eastern, uh, no, the other part of Asia. And then we will see some similar pattern of the, the regime or some conflicts between the policies and the, the executions at the grassroots level. And then we do some uh, uh, theoretical contributions to this field and then to draw some uh, um, policy suggestions to every cities and to see whether some policies based on these empirical studies would do better for the executions. This is uh, how the scholars will do for the real world. And then this is uh, this is uh, the the long term plan for for the for the scholars in this field. I, I think if we work together, then we will push this uh, the, the 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 whole problems, uh, so solutions to this problem forward. Thank you. Thank you. So I'd like to give speaker the last uh, word before I come in, in case you still have want to respond or would suggest. Uh, the, the speaker is the the speaker cannot suggest a way forward. I'm afraid. But um, what I would I would like just to mention for for Professor Kala. Um, so we've been on this project for particularly the Shanghai part of it for about two years now. And for the last two years, we've been trying to determine who precisely is in charge of sanitation in Shanghai. And you would be surprised. And it is such, such a fragmented, multifaceted system with so many actors and so many agencies. And, and, and we are, we're still, we're continuing our quest to find out 
where um, where the the central planning power sits. We're close, but at this point, I can't really say. So um, yeah, I think maybe this is this is where we where we should be headed um, to to identify. Well, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's so it all all of that I'm trying to say. It is very very complex, and there's there's such fragmentation and such complexity at place that um, there's there's a lot of work to be done in this particular field <laughs> that we are all working in. Thank you. I think we just have three minutes left and I'll use uh, two minutes of it. Uh, it's quite uh, unfortunate that uh, some of our original participants could not join due to some or the other reason. But this area of infrastructure versus services needs to be looked into. When we start, and it was a fascinating story that we heard today, uh, just when a single aspect of one, in, uh, one infrastructure was take, taken up, that is uh, a sewerage system or uh, access to sanitation. Uh, it, but within that also we're talking about uh, the sewerage and the toilet access. But if we expand the inquiry to other infrastructures, uh, including economic infrastructures, including transport access, um, housing, and, and the experience of deprivation, violence, uh, that comes as a, on account of that. I think Dr. Rumi did mention about uh, associated violence on account of displacements. It's a story of either peripheralization of low-income housing and pushing large communities into more vulnerable situation and women tend to face. I must share a story with you that a friend of mine, and I think some of you would know, was doing research, Karen Coelho, she was doing research in Chennai and she came up with a story when we were looking at the peripheral settlements that she said that the participants identified instances of rape uh, in, in, in the sites, on the resettlement sites. And so the, some of the stories that uh, come out of some of the resettlement sites, there's a huge in, uh, experience of direct violence uh, besides deprivations and uh, structural violence on a consistent basis. But we also find, given the higher, higher level of inequalities and social, social as well as economic inequalities in Indian city and the nature of Indian state, uh, you do experience uh, 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 everyday violence. I think that's what Amita's study, study and our study found that Indian cities are persistent, a low key everyday violence. For example, women traveling in transport, you have if there could be physical harassment, pawing, etc., but there is a constant tension of traveling and harassment, and it's a low-key everyday violence, violence around access to water in the informal settlements of women fighting with each other, violence by the private sector uh, contractors, uh, sometimes just are under uh, kind of local landlords and goons and I think gangs and other things who are involved in provisioning of some of the basic services uh, and, and the kind of violence that is experienced. So there's a whole big area which requires uh, further investigation. And 
indeed uh, you one if even if it was not covid and you're not directly going into the area these are difficult areas of research and ethnographic uh, uh, methods are more helpful and last point i want to say is that uh, on some of the infrastructure access the macro data the city level data would tell you one story but when you actually go on to the ground you get a completely different story i mean that's what the pictures of china reveals because if you look at china statistical uh, the city statistical yearbooks and urban construction yearbooks and so on you find a very different set of data but then when you actually go on to the field you see a very different set of data and as kala mentioned in indian context the data is fragmented it's not collected uh, and so on we have a further more complication on interpreting the data so all of you thank you very much uh, i um also thanks to the attendees uh, and people who have raised questions uh, and thank you dr arjun kumar for organizing such interesting events uh during the lockdown and keeping us all interested in invested in all the interesting discussions so thank, thank you, you all um, ma'am yes yeah would you like to come in dr arjun kumar and disclose this yes ma'am i'll just take half a minute to thank all of you as a as a formal vote of thanks so thank you everyone for attending this uh, web policy talk on infrastructuring the city trajectories of violence and on behalf of uh, center for habitat urban regional studies chhurs setting pre uh, we thank all of you for being a part of this uh, very important deliberation and we are thankful to our speaker dr diljana yosifa and joining from uk thank you so much ma'am and our chair professor dashree mahadevia for uh, a very prominent indian uh, scholar who is uh, uh, showing us the direction to go forward uh, in fact i have learned most of my urban readings from dashree ma'am's work so and i'm also very thankful to all the discussants uh, professor kala ma'am uh, dr rumiya zaid sir uh, uh, the dr zimingli ambika ma'am and professor zufai and uh, uh, samir sir could not join but it would have been very uh, pertinent we'll try to also connect with our speaker if there is anything we can learn uh, from everyone there is some hail storm or other things going on in uh, kolkata so samir adip sir could not join but we'll try to connect over the email and learn from each other uh, thank you everyone a uh, good night and have a nice day thank you so much bye thank you bye